Welcome, everyone. My name is Nancy Porter, and it is my pleasure to share with you articles from the February 13th through February 20th, 2023 issue of Time magazine. I must need to remind you that you are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired, and all materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and absolutely no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Okay, with that out of the way, let's look at uh, the brief, which is a section in Time magazine. And this first article in the brief section is titled, Trump's 2024 Test. This is by Philip Elliott, filed from Salem, New Hampshire. His first campaign stops reveal a candidate unsure of what his base wants. By the time former President Donald Trump left a Salem, New Hampshire high school auditorium on January 28th, his return to the campaign trail after an unusually sleepy start to his 2024 campaign, he had ricocheted off many of his standbys, indulging conspiracy theories, nursing conservatives' fears about race and gender, and offering an alternative reality to his successor's record. The hour-long diatribe suggested President Joe Biden should have thrown his son Hunter under the bus, that members of the Taliban did not fight at night because they lacked binoculars, and that wind turbines knocked planes out of the sky. For a fragile front-runner facing criticism over the shaky opening to his latest bid for the White House, Trump's initial showing did little to claim the skittishness among Republicans and some former supporters that the candidate himself acknowledged. They said, he's not campaigning. Maybe he's lost the step, Crumb said, mocking his critics. I am more angry now and I am more committed now than ever. Maybe, but words, even hyper-exaggerated and errant ones, aren't deeds. Trump's drop by with the New Hampshire GOP's annual meeting didn't prove his critics wrong. Nor did his next step in South Carolina, where he unfurled a pack of high-wattage supporters at the state capitol, but offered no more steady or reassuring a performance. Quote, Together we will complete the unfinished business of making America great again, unquote, Trump said in Columbia, South Carolina. Yet Trump isn't starting as a blank slate national candidate grounded in a slogan. His image is pretty well baked at this point, a meager 5% of Americans, according to a CNN poll conducted at the end of January, said they don't have an opinion about the lone president who was impeached twice and whose actions after the 2020 election culminated in a deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol. Trump may want to run as a traditional candidate with the strong support befitting a former president, but that is not in the cards for him. For his numerous potential Republican challengers, Trump's showing at his first campaign stop should not have spooked anyone from the race. Sure, Trump can still butcher political red meat with the best of them. He can slag his foes without a flinch, call the modern Democratic Party a tribe of socialists, Marxists, and communists, and disparage Black Lives Matter demonstrators as criminals. But mentions of Hunter Biden's laptop seemed to land with a thud, and members of the audience appeared to go numb when crooked Hillary Clinton came up. 
His boasts about being called Your Excellency now just seem sad, a relic of a bygone time. In appealing to voters to take back his spot in the Oval Office, Trump has a rich reservoir of material to mine. If you strip away his crass rhetoric, his agenda as president gave conservatives a whole lot of their wish list that's been incomplete since the Reagan era. Trump picked up on the public's discontent with the border crisis, the economic disparities incumbent with globalization, and the rampant drug addiction crisis in the U.S. In turn, he reshaped the modern GOP to fit his needs. It's just not clear the current party actually wants him as its leader anymore. Ex-presidents leave office with some unique stories, and Trump is no exception. Amid a salvage yard of anti-trans exclusionary ideas and a pitch for the direct election of school principals, Trump told the crowd in New Hampshire the old tale of landing in another country and being shocked that Air Force One had to dim its lights and draw the shades for security precautions. He then questioned why he hadn't given himself a medal for courage. Trump talked about his negotiating sessions with the Taliban and the five telephone operators who stood by to help him place calls. Corporate clients might pay top dollars to hear such anecdotes on the lecture circuit. Most former presidents command six figures for an afternoon in a convention center. And Trump's time in D.C. is certainly ripe for story time. Which, if you listen carefully to the activists in the audience at Republican events, especially after January 6th of 2021, is where many in the party would prefer Trump spend his days. For many, the late-night tweets, the policy vivamp, and the bully-to-victory approach of the Trump show has now worn thin. I liked President Trump's policies, Michael Loftus says in the school hallway, but he's so divisive, the 67-year-old retiree from Newport continues. Going forward, we need someone who is not so controversial. That no matter how much sandpaper Trump brings to his new workshop, will never be the case. Which is why Senator Lindsey Graham, appearing with Trump in South Carolina, took direct aim at the, that criticism. How many times have you heard, we like Trump policies, but we want somebody new? There are no Trump policies without Donald Trump. Unsaid? There may be no Republican Party, either or at least not one modern historians recognize. And this brief has also been reported by Soyek Berga, Sonia Mansour, Olivia Waxman, and Julia Lorthian. All right, let us move on to another article in the brief news section. And this one is titled, Why Are Groceries So Expensive Right Now? And it's by Nick Popley. Bridget Moore, a 40-year-old mother of five from Lake Park, Georgia, has noticed that her family's grocery bill is much higher these days, way over her $200 weekly budget. To keep her finances under control, she's had to buy less and get more selective in her shopping for family meals. I haven't had to work since 2009, and now with five kids, it's becoming more and more difficult to afford even the basic necessities, she says. I did not expect to be in this situation, and it's a struggle to make ends meet. 
Although overall inflation is starting to cool a bit, shoppers like Moore haven't seen much relief. Grocery prices were up 11.8% in December compared with those a year earlier. Grocery inflation declined from November to December, but prices have been rising sharply since early 2021. Nearly every food group costs more than it did a year ago. Grade A eggs are up 138%. Margarine up 43.8%. Butter sticks up 38.5%. All-purpose flour up 34.5%. And spaghetti and macaroni is up 31.3%, according to the most Bureau of Labor Statistics data. Many shoppers who Time spoke with are struggling to keep up and asking when it will end. Their stories paint a picture of the trade-offs and difficult decisions families across the nation are facing in order to afford everyday pantry items. For many, the frustration is starting to boil over. I am not happy with the state of the U.S. economy right now, says Moore. I am worried about how I will provide for my family, and it's difficult to see a way out. I hope that it will get better, but with the current economic state, it's hard to say. We shouldn't be struggling at this stage in life, and we were not struggling before. The most notable price increase for most people is in eggs. A dozen eggs cost, on average, $4.25 in December, making it the grocery staple with the largest year-over-year price increase. Cage-free or organic egg prices are far higher still. This is largely attributed to the ongoing avian bird flu epidemic, which by nearly 58 million birds had been infected as of January 6th, the deadliest outbreak in U.S. history. Chicken meat prices have increased nearly 11% in the past year for the same reason. This is the largest animal emergency that the U.S. Department of Agriculture has ever faced in this country says Gino Lorenzoni, an assistant professor of poultry science and avian health at Penn State University. And it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. The cost of butter has also skyrocketed over the past year. One pound of butter sticks is now $4.81 on average. Dairy farmers say extreme heat and smaller cow herds the result of pandemic financial struggles, are the main reasons behind the price increase. Higher energy and fertilizer costs are also contributing to rising dairy prices. Fresh fruits and vegetables also have been seen substantial price increases, though lettuce most of all, increasing 25% in the past 12 months. The culprits are dry weather conditions, and an insect-borne virus that damaged crops in California's Salinas Valley, where much of the country's lettuce is grown in the winter months. Analysts say that there's no straight answer on when grocery prices will stabilize. That's largely because a complex list of factors are responsible for the price hikes, including higher post-pandemic demand, ongoing supply chain shortages, geopolitical events like the war in Ukraine, and unstable weather patterns. But there may be reason for garden optimism, even if prices might never go back to pre-pandemic levels. Shipping costs are declining, 
and Americans are purchasing less as they feel the pinch of inflation. Tom Bailey, senior analyst of Consumer Foods with Rabobank, predicts that prices will soften up earlier this year. However, he does caution. If the last 24 months have told us anything, don't ever assume that things can't change or get away from us. All right, let's move on to another article. This is from the View section of Time magazine, and the title is Civilization Over Nation. It is by Bruno Maceus, and he is the author of a book called Geopolitics for the End of Time and the forthcoming book titled Masters of the Metaverse. Civilization Over Nation. Israel is no longer a liberal democracy. As Benjamin Netanyahu's new government took office on December 29th, its illiberalism was evident. No longer a matter of debate or polite embarrassment, the contempt for liberal ideas brings disparate factions together, against the media and intellectuals, and increasingly against the old Western-inspired Israeli political system and constitution. New Minister Basilel Smotrich, for example, called gay pride parades worse than bestiality, and in 2017 published a political manifesto deta detailing how best to force Palestinians to truly internalize the loss of national hope, killing those who need to be killed. He was appointed finance minister in Netanyahu's government, Yariv Levin, the new justice minister, proposed on January 4th a set of sweeping changes to the powers of the high court, limiting its ability to strike down legislation, while placing the power to appoint judges in the hands of the executive. None of these developments are unexpected, but there is still a battle to be fought. Will Israel become a nationalist or even theocratic state? excluding everyone who does not accept the oneness of people, land, and religion? Or can the tradition of Jewish values flourish in the context of a civilization state open to other cultures and civilizations? There is a powerful case for a civilization state, but the idea of a civilization needs to be distinguished from national or ethnic identity. Ethnic identity is irrational and takes pride in accepting race or revelation as a basis for political power. It is defined by opposition to some other group, Jews against Palestinians, whom Smotrich defines as anti-Jews. It ends in bloodshed. Civilization is an exercise in political reason the effort to organize collective life around principles that express our fundamental relationship to truth, to the world, and to each other. The idea of organizing a state around a distinctive civilization is increasingly gaining ground around the world. It corresponds to the crisis of liberalism as a universal program of political and social life. Liberal ideas, for all their intellectual appeal, derived their ultimate force from the economic and military power of the countries, France, Britain, and the United States, where they originated from 
the 18th century. That power is weakened today. So is this the end of history? Even the dogmas keep changing. Liberal ideas on race and gender, for example, have changed so much during my lifetime that they've become unrecognizable. A renewed competition with rival systems of thought might not be such a bad idea if liberalism is no longer so sure about final truths. As liberal power wanes, rival civilizations are reaffirming themselves as models for how to arrange political and social life. Countries such as Israel and Prime Minister Narendra Modi's India now constitute the best candidates for civilization states and have a renewed claim to be part of the search for the most compelling political beliefs and political systems for delivering the good life. Judaism and Hinduism, for example, have for thousands of years developed answers to fundamental political questions on freedom, justice, and equality. It's implausible that nothing on these matters can be learned from those traditions or that we can place our hopes for political salvation only on Western values. But these countries will fail to become civilization states unless they are able to navigate between the liberalism they no longer accept on the one hand and the ethnic or religious nationalism they feel tempted to by on the other hand. The civilization state is a third type beyond both liberalism and nationalism. Why should a Jewish or Hindu civilization state refuse to accept the existence of different traditions and ideas? Why should it demand others accept the loss of hope and happiness? If these civilization states see themselves as superior to liberal ideas, then they must offer better solutions than liberalism has done to the questions of diversity and pluralism. Pandit Dean Denial Appendayaya, who died in 1968, but is one of Modi's main intellectual influences, liked to argue that every religion was compatible with Hinduism because the Hindu ideal is a civilization, and a civilization is not related to a mode of worship. He said that the Hindu tradition had been open to influence from Islam, so a Muslim could hope to make his own contribution to its growth. A civilization looks up from the world of blood and instinct to the world of light and progress. The challenge today is to turn the revolt against liberalism into a civilizational rather than a national project. All right, let's move on to another article in the View section titled, The Secret Tax on Women's Time. This is by Lauren Howe, Lindsay Howe, and Ashley Williams. All three of them study the future of work at, respectively, the University of Uruk, the University of Liechtenstein, and Harvard Business School. The Secret Tax on Women's Time. When studies revealed the so-called pink tax, showing in 2015 that urinary incontinence products for her cost 13% more than similar products for men, it caused outrage and action. But there is also an unaddressed pink tax on women's time. 
a global epidemic of women lacking time to conduct the activities of their everyday lives that men simply do not experience. In fact, men have, on average, five hours more leisure time per week than women do, equivalent to 260 hours or 10.8 full 24-hour days each year. Our own research found that it's true everywhere. After a conversation with a mother of three from an upper-middle-class neighborhood of Johannesburg, our colleague Margot Rubin asked, So you're saying that there's nothing outside of money or time that will make anything better? She paused and said, Yes. In interviews with working mothers in crowded and poor Kibera settlements in Nairobi, one lamented, I have so much to do at home, and I still have to go to work. Why is there this time inequality? At home, child care and chores devour women's time. At work, women, even those who have the security of steady employment, face further unequal time demands. Women at work are more often asked and expected to take on office housework, necessary but non-promotable tasks such as taking notes, helping new hires get up to speed, bringing in cake for colleagues' birthdays, or getting coffee for the office. With results that aligned with gender-based stereotypes, one study found that women volunteer up to 50% more than men for these tasks. Women also negotiate for time at a lower rate than men. In another study, men were more than twice as likely as women to request an extension when their deadline was adjustable, perpetuating this time poverty trap further. So how can we repeal the pink tax on time? Time-saving incentives are one solution, giving women money or vouchers to pay someone else to complete daily tasks that erode their free time, such as cooking, shopping, laundry, bringing the children to school, household maintenance, or to shorten the time they spend on tasks, like providing money to take a taxi instead of a bus. Services such as backup child care or prepared takeaway meals can also reduce time burdens. Given that buying time is a luxury that few can afford, policy innovations are also needed and could be particularly impactful if expanded and adapted to reach those with the lowest incomes around the globe. For example, in field research in Kibera, Kenya, women in informal settlements reported that meal and laundry services would be most helpful in saving time. The research team then worked with a local community center to offer these time-saving services, finding that they reduced women's perceived burden of unpaid labor by 7% and resulted in a 5% increase in well-being during the study. Another hurdle is to get women to actually use time-saving services. Overturning social norms is key, both for women and for men. For example, 60% of women find workplace flexibility the key to future jobs, but many believe that a risk to flexible work 
is that any time women gain will be consumed by domestic responsibilities. At the same time, men get criticized at work when taking on childcare responsibilities, even resulting in workplace penalties like demotions. Lastly, free time needs to be reframed as essential rather than as unproductive and wasteful. Spending time on activities such as exercising, volunteering, or socializing predicts happiness, and valuing leisure over work is related to greater fulfillment. Mindsets must shift to view leisure as necessary rather than nice to have. All right. I would like to finish with one more article. This is also from the Views section of the February 13th through February 20th issue of Time magazine. Title, Sleepwalking into a Less Secure Future. It is an essay by Kristalina Georgieva. Early in the pandemic, experts projected that the world economy could shrink by almost 10% in 2020. Yet what played out was a contraction of 3.1%, still a huge loss of output, but not nearly as dire. To a large extent, this was due to international cooperation. Countries came together to diagnose the problem, a simultaneous shock to supply and demand. This meant that standard policy responses would not be sufficient. That's why policymakers took extraordinary fiscal and monetary measures to support businesses and households. Without this coordinated response, we would have faced another Great Depression. And without the global collaboration of scientists and health authorities, we would not have had effective vaccines in record time. When crisis strikes, and it has so often in the past three years, international cooperation can save lives and livelihoods and lay the foundations for faster recovery. Both the financial response and the vaccines are representative of the broader benefits of decades of economic integration and cooperation, which also helped billions of people to become healthier, wealthier, and better educated. Over the past three decades, around 1.3 billion people were lifted out of extreme poverty. To get there, we had to reach across borders. Think of trade integration, spurred by lower trade barriers and the emergence of global supply chains. And think of the spread of new technologies and cross-border capital flows that have underpinned much-needed investment, especially in emerging and developing economies. But this is only part of the story. The dislocations from trade and technological change have harmed some communities. Inward-looking policies and trade tensions have been on the rise for some years. And now geopolitical fragmentation is raising the specter of a new Cold War that could see the world break into economic blocks at a cost of trillions of dollars in lost productivity. In other words, unless we confront fragmentation, we are at risk of sleepwalking into a future that is poorer and less secure. And as we work to overcome these divisive forces, we must focus on the most vulnerable. 
This includes many countries in Africa and the Caribbean that are already bearing the brunt of climate change. Should they face challenge alone, even though others contributed so much more to the climate crisis? Or consider the growing risk of a debt crisis in emerging and developing economies. Should they face this dire fiscal situation alone, even though most are being hit by external shocks rather than domestic policy missteps? The answer must be no. The suffering of one country can easily affect others and threaten global growth. So it's in everyone's interest to urgently strengthen international cooperation on these vital issues. The International Money Fund is founded on the principle that we are stronger together. Thanks to the collective will of our membership, we provided a record $650 billion allocation of special drawing rights, funds that allowed many vulnerable countries to maintain access to liquidity, freeing up resources to pay for vaccines and health care. And we are now helping countries with stronger reserves to channel their special drawing rights to countries whose need is even greater. For example, so far we have around $40 billion in pledges to support our new Resilience and Sustainability Trust, which will allow the International Money Fund to provide long-term financing for the first time. Our goal is to help vulnerable, low- and middle-income countries build resilience against structural challenges, such as climate change and pandemics. While we cannot prevent new shocks, we can bolster the resilience of our people, our communities, and our societies. One thing is clear. We must overcome diminished trust and growing fragmentation because no country should face these challenges alone. The pandemic showed us that we can cooperate to harness human courage, compassion, and ingenuity. And this is exactly how we can help build a better future for all people. And this was said by Kristalina Georgieva, as told to Belinda Luscombe. Georgieva is the managing director of the International Monetary Fund. And that concludes our presentation of Time Magazine for this week. And remember that materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, I am Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you.